Welcome, everyone. Uh, my name is Andy Pakula. I'm the minister at New Unity. New Unity uh, is the organization that um, is that from which this heritage program comes. New Unity is a uh, church where people don't have to believe in God. And I'm the minister, and I'm an atheist. We are also the descendants of a very historic building, the New Ancient Green Meeting House, where some amazing pieces of history happened, including the, the um, great Mary Wilsoncraft attended, and it was probably the place where she was radicalized and came to, um, led her to ultimately write Vindication of the Rights of Women. The Heritage Project that um, is producing this event is uh, sponsored by the National Lottery Heritage Fund, whose generous donation, generous grant, has enabled us to completely renovate the 1708 New Green Meeting House, put it into a very, very appropriate. Um, old style and we're keep, keeping all the quaint old pieces while still making it into a modern building. And I hope that you'll all get to be there. And um, we are, of course, exploring history uh, through the lens of the present. And today we talk about dissent and uh, particularly in a particular context. And that's the way this um, project works looking at how history can teach us about the present and how the present interacts with the past. So with that said, I am very pleased to introduce Rory, who uh, has um, created this particular event. Rory, over to you. Hi, everyone. Thank you for being here. Thanks for coming. Uh, thanks to the speakers for coming as well. I'm just gonna give a sort of short introduction to the, the series and the event, and then we'll move on to our first speaker. Um, so this is the first session of our series on dissent with the Newton Green Meeting House. With this series, we wanted to ask ourselves a number of questions. What is dissent? Which stories of dissent get told? Who is remembered and who is forgotten? Which bodies are always considered dissenting? And how can we draw upon the lives of dissenters in the past in the ways we resist in the present. From the historical home of dissenters and abolitionists here in Newington Green, this series of talks aims to uncover histories of radicalism from the bottom up, finding inspiration from the past and hope in the present. I can't think of a better place to start than with our first session on anti-colonial dissent, reckoning with the past. We're speaking at a time when we have a government purportedly fighting against the erasure of history, uh, whilst continuing to slip further into authoritarianism. It's a time where protecting statues of colonialists and slave traders is considered more important than the descendants of colonized people living without violence. In the UK and globally, the mythologies of colonialism and white supremacy seem to have more hold than ever. This series in its own little way hopes to break through the post-colonial amnesia, melancholy and impasse of our current world, reminding us that there have been many points in history where abolition and liberation seemed impossible and yet somehow people were able to imagine and articulate futures beyond their current subjugation. 
This vision of freedom is encapsulated in the two subjects of our talks tonight, the Haitian Revolution and the figure of W.E.B. Du Bois. In her landmark 1981 book, Women, Race and Class, Angela Davis writes a searing critique of the early movements for women's suffrage in the United States, notably their neglect of and often active work against the liberation and suffrage of black Americans. As part of her discussion, Davis singles out two figures as the most, and I quote, outstanding male defenders of women's political equality of their time, Frederick Douglass and W.E.B. Du Bois. Born in 1868 and dying in 1963, Du Bois witnessed more social change than many of us can even conceive of. Whilst ever developing and sometimes contradictory in his thought, Du Bois consistently looked towards new possibilities and realities for the emancipation of subjugated people. I'm hugely looking forward to our second speaker, Ali Meji's discussion of him later this evening. Our first speaker, Gaminda Bambra, will be talking to us about one of the most significant and yet in this country at least one of the least known events in global history, the Haitian Revolution. The 31st of May, just two days ago, marked the 32nd anniversary of the death of Trinidadian historian, Marxist and cricket lover C.L.R. James. James's 1938 book, The Black Jacobins, provided the definitive history of the Haitian Revolution and continues to be a galvanizing force in movements against imperialism of the present. Despite continued and tireless work to bring attention to the significance of the Haitian Revolution, it has not yet entered the cultural lexicon to the same extent as other, in my opinion, less revolutionary revolutions, such as the French and American revolutions. To help us be part of this work, we are very excited to welcome Gaminda Bambra as our first speaker this evening. Gaminda is a Professor of Postcolonial and Decolonial Studies in the Department of International Relations in the School of Global Studies, University of Sussex. Her current projects are on epistemological justice and reparations and on the political economy of race and colonialism. Thank you very much, Gaminda, for being with us this evening. So thanks so much for uh, inviting me to participate in this. I'm really pleased to see, uh, to, to be part of it and also then to be part of the conversation around the both the Haitian Revolution and talking about Du Bois as Ali will do later. So what I want to do initially is really explore the question of why the Haitian Revolution has so rarely been understood as one of the key events of the making of the modern world and the way that Rory set out we often sort of, when thinking about modern revolutions, we often talk about the revolution in France in 1789, or then the revolutions that occur in the US in 1776. And these come to be seen as sort of foundational events of world history. And they're foundational events that bring into being what's understood to be the modern world. And in many ways, their world historical status is presented in terms of sort of being seen as a consequence of being democratic revolutions, revolutions that are organized around new understandings of equality and the redress of older forms of political and social hierarchy. And this has been so despite the fact that the franchise, the right to vote in both of these revolutions was restricted to propertied white men and that the dispossession of indigenous peoples and the enslavement both of them and transported Africans was central to both revolutions. So at the very outset, what I want to sort of suggest is that the Haitian Revolution doesn't simply deserve to sit alongside the French and American revolutions. It actually far exceeds their scope and vision. 
Haiti was established on the basis of the freedom of all its populations, and it was organized around a political commitment that was opposed to colonization and to enslavement. Now, the principles established in the French and American revolutions are often argued to motivate the overcoming of slavery and other exclusions. If you remember when uh, Barack Obama was president, and he set out this, you know, in his sort of famous speech, he talks about slavery being one of the original stains on the American, on American democracy, but that this stain could be overcome by um, being true to the values of, of the American Revolution. However, what we can see and what I'm going to set out is that the Haitian Revolution is the one that really ushers in the modern world. And yet very few accounts actually even talk about it. I mean, Rory mentioned C.L.R. James. He's the sort of the key text, the Black Jacobins. But other history, especially ones that talk about the birth of the modern world, such as Jürgen Osterhammel's The Transformation of the World or Christopher Bailey's The Birth of the Modern World, they hardly address Haiti at all. So to give you some sort of facts to contextualize what was going on here. So we're talking about the period of the 1700s, the late 1700s. During this time, the island that we now know of as Haiti used to be called Saint-Domingue. It was a French colony, it was in the western part of Hispaniola, and this is an island in the Caribbean that was also claimed by the Spanish. At the time of the French Revolution, so in 1789, Saint-Domingue was the most profitable part of the French Empire. You had raw materials, sugar, coffee, cotton that were grown on plantations in Saint-Domingue. These were worked by enslaved Africans. And then the raw materials were shipped to towns in France to be turned into commodities. A third of these commodities were consumed within France, according to C.L.R. James, and the rest were exported, including to Saint-Domingue, which was one of the largest export markets for metropolitan France. By the end of the 18th century, there were estimated to be over half a million enslaved African people living in Saint-Domingue, together with quite a sizable population of free and freed people of color. The conditions on the island were harsh, and even before the revolution in the metropole in Paris, there had been uprisings and unrest on the island. And within two years of the events in Paris, there was revolutionary unrest that re-emerged in the colony and it continued until the state of Haiti was eventually established 12 years later. So the revolts that had started happening in Saint-Domingue had intensified in the early 1790s. And this forced the French to send two commissioners, Sontenax and Paul Varel, to the colony to quell the rebellions. But when they arrived there, they realized that actually the situation had, was so advanced that they couldn't quell the, the rebellion that was taking place. And instead, all they could do was agree the abolition of slavery. So this happens in 1793. And this is one of the reasons why I say that the Haitian Revolution is so remarkable, because at this time, no other country is even making, who is, who is involved in, in the enslavement of populations. No, nowhere else is there a demand for the abolition of slavery um, or a systematic universal demand. And so here in Haiti in 1793, on the ground, you have a decree which abolishes slavery. 
This decree is then actually ratified in Paris at the National Convention in February of 1794 and is extended to all French overseas colonies. And as CLR James sets out, it's in January 1794 that three deputies from Saint-Domingue leave the island, travel across the ocean, arrive in Paris in order to participate in the Constituent Assembly. And the, the three are Bellet, who's a formerly enslaved person who'd bought his own liberty through labor in his own time, Mills and Dufay. And their entrance, according to James, arouses much excitement from the other deputies as being indicative of the last gasp of the aristocracy of the skin and a move towards the consecration of full equality. They were welcomed with open arms. And when Belay addressed the assembly, he started off by pledging support to the cause of the revolution. And he asked the convention to declare that slavery is abolished. The assembly, and again, I'm taking all of this from CLR James, the assembly rose in acclamation and a decree was drafted and dispatched immediately to all the French colonies stating, and I quote, the national convention declares slavery abolished in all the colonies. In consequence, it declares that all men without distinction of color domiciled in the colonies are French citizens and they enjoy all the rights assured under the constitution. This is a really important point because this is 1794, slavery is abolished and all men using the language of the time, but all people living in the colonies are now to be regarded as French citizens. So when in 1802, Napoleon seeks to restore slavery in the French colonies, what he's doing is actively attempting to enslave French citizens. And this is something that I think also gets missed out in the discussions that up until that time, enslavement had occurred of other populations, not of one's own citizens. But Napoleon's reestablishment of slavery is an active attempt to enslave citizens. This obviously led to immense outrage in Saint-Domingue. And CLR James reports to Saint-Louverture, who is one of the key figures of the um, uh, of the revolution stating and again I quote I took up arms for the freedom of my color which France alone proclaimed but she has no right to nullify our liberty is no longer in her hands it is in our own we will defend it or perish and defend it they did as the war instigated by France led to France's defeat and so James credits Toussaint Louverture for this Herculean task of fashioning an army from untrained individuals who often didn't know how to use guns into a force capable of defeating European troops. One thing to remember also at this point is that even though the, the uh, people in Saint-Domingue are fighting against the French, and, and France and Britain are at war because this is the period of the Napoleonic Wars, when France is losing, Britain decides to try and cut, nip in and, and take the colony for themselves. And the Haitians, who were the people who were to become the Haitians, defeat the British as well as the French armies on the island. And so it's really quite extraordinary because Toussaint himself had no military background or training. But as James states, he incarnated the determination of his people never, never to be slaves again. And even after his arrest and deportation to France, he had done sufficient to lay the ground for the most extraordinary of political victories. 
So the island now, and this is 1804, is to be known as Haiti. It restates its commitment to the abolition of slavery. And in its constitution of 1804, it asserts its complete independence from France. Now, there's some quite remarkable things that occur at the moment of the establishment of the Haitian state. One of the first acts is that they change the name. They rename Saint-Domingue as Haiti or Haiti. And in doing that, what they do is honor the name that had been given to the island by the Taino Arawak people who had been practically wiped out by, by earlier Spanish and French colonization. And so there's a sense in which, you know, that they honor the people who preceded them on the land by seeking to rename the island as they would have understood it. They also have an understanding of colonization as dispossession and not just simply the repudiation of enslavement. And this is something that's quite central to their understanding. And it was central to how the Haitian constitution comes to be established. And what they state in the constitution is that everybody who is black is a citizen. Now, blackness is not defined in terms of skin color for, for the Haitians, but rather it's defined in terms of the political commitment of a population that's opposed to colonization. So on the island, there were also indentured German and Polish workers who had been brought to Haiti by the French, but these people were regarded as black as were children born to white women, because again, they stated that children ought not to have to bear the sins of their fathers. And so no child, whatever color, was seen to, as, as white, but was regarded as black. And some people sometimes say, oh, well, you know, but because one of the arguments they make is that Haiti is the first country to make color no bar to political participation. And here, when they use the terms black and white, they're not talking about skin color, but actually political commitment, because to be black was to be committed to the project of freedom and liberty that was represented by those who had fought against colonization. And to be white was to be committed to colonization and enslavement. And so in this sense, it's actually a political argument that they're making. And so in this sense, by making freedom from enslavement and freedom from racial discrimination the bedrock of political understandings, and by delinking citizenship from race, the Haitian constitution radicalized and universalized the idea of equality. There's no such call anywhere else across the Atlantic world. I mean, if you think about the American Revolution in the US, they maintain slavery as central to the constitution of their own society. And in France, France maintains forms of domination and exclusion within its colonies. It reinstitutes slavery within the rest of its colonies, and it maintains segregated uh, societies up until, you know, with both the US and with France, they maintain segregation up until the mid 60s, 1960s. And you have this revolution in, front, in, in Haiti in 1804. How much longer do you want me to speak for, Rory? I can't remember when I started. Um, I guess maybe another five minutes or so would be yeah. fantastic. Okay. Yeah. Right. So one of the things that I then want to, so that in a sense is, you know, a very potted account of the Haitian revolution and some of the, um, 
things that occur as a consequence of it that make it so extraordinary as an event. And then one of the things that we might ask is, well, given that Haiti is so radical and so extraordinary, why has there been this silence around the Haitian Revolution? And one of the things that it's important to know is that the silencing of the Haitian Revolution happens almost immediately as the revolution itself, because what France does is establish a total economic blockade of the island. Now, the blockade isn't just a punitive act by Napoleon to punish Haiti for emancipating itself, but it also sought to manage what was seen as the contagion of revolution and self-emancipation from spreading to other enslaved societies across the Caribbean and the Americas. The event was such a disruption to the dominant worldview, which was based on an understanding of European colonial dominance, that it had to be contained. It had to be other people had to be prevented from learning from what had happened in Haiti and, you know, copying it. So France blockades Haiti and this blockade bankrupts Haiti within 20 years. And one of the things I guess to, to keep in mind is that up until this point, when Haiti had been um, a colony of France's, it had produced the most income for France than any other part of the French Empire. So it was an incredibly, uh, it, it generated a huge amount of wealth. But within 20 years of the revolution, it becomes bankrupt because of this blockade. And the blockade is only lifted once Haiti agrees to pay France compensation for its loss of property. And compensation was paid, that is, not for the loss, not only for the loss of the colonized lands, but also for the property that was embodied in those human beings who had been enslaved and now had had the temerity to emancipate themselves. So there was a sense that when France is asking for compensation of lost property, it's not just the land and the buildings and the materials, but it actually values the human beings it had enslaved because they had also been understood as property. Henry Christophe, who's one of the, the rulers who, who's ruling in the north part of Haiti during this period, fiercely opposed any compensation to be paid to the French. And he argued, and this is a long quote, what rights, what arguments can the ex-colonists then allege to justify their claim for an indemnity? Is it possible that they wish to be recompensed for the loss of our persons? It is inconceivable that Haitians who have escaped torture and massacre at the hands of these men, Haitians who have conquered their own country by the force of their arms and at the cost of their blood, that these same free Haitians should now purchase their property and persons once again with money paid to their former oppressors. As such, it's not until after Henry Christ Christophe dies that any transaction becomes possible between Haiti and France. France sets compensation at 150 million francs. That's how much it wants from Haiti. And remember by this time, Haiti is only half an island. It's not even the full island because you have a separate, you know, you have the part that then uh, becomes the Dominican Republic and, and then Haiti. So to put this into context, 
in order to fund the Napoleonic Wars, because as I said, Saint-Domingue had been one of the wealthiest colonies of France when it uh, had the revolution, emancipated itself. France lost that income stream, but France, income stream, but France also had to was was fighting the the wars. What we know is the Napoleonic Wars. It needed more money to do that, and so what it did was it ended up selling the entire territory of Louisiana. Now, Louisiana at that time is much bigger than Louisiana, the state we know today. It was north of the Canadian border, south of the Mexican border, the whole sort of central part of the US is Louisiana. It sells that territory to the fledgling US and thus doubles the size of the US for 80 million francs. And yet what it's asking for from Haiti is 150 million francs. The Haitian government is unable to pay this indemnity, but in order, but because it's now agreed, it, it has to, and therefore it takes out loans from French banks and it enters a cycle of debt that would last into the 20th century. This coerced debt was not repaid till the middle of the 20th century, by which time it's estimated that in today's money, France has extracted from Haiti the equivalent of 21 billion US dollars. This is the extraction that determines Haiti's future poverty and has been a significant contribution to the establishment of France's continuing prosperity. So in part, the you know, so I think the A, the Haitian Revolution is important in its own terms. It's important to know that colonization was never something that was ever simply accepted by people. It was always resisted, and sometimes those resistances were successful. And in many cases, the resistances were successful, but often the successful resistance comes to be written out of history in particular ways. So what does it mean to reclaim those histories and to knit together the different contestations that there have been of colonialism in order to provide a the resources for thinking how we can resist what often seems to be you know impossible to resist in the present but we recognize that actually here with with what happened in Haiti it was possible to confront the mighty French empire and defeat it and create a new state but the other thing is also to think about the connections that, that contribute to the wealth, you know, the relationship between wealth and poverty. So France is wealthy, but its wealth is not a consequence of stuff that's done by French people in France. It occurs as a consequence of its involvement in these colonial uh, relationships. And so in that sense, if we were to understand the Haitian Revolution as radical, we also need to understand that perhaps it's been silenced precisely because of its radical nature. So I'll leave with one final question. What do we need to do today to reclaim the significance of the Haitian Revolution to how we think about the world that we share? Thanks. Thank you so much. That was really wonderful and I, really hope we return to the questions that you left with us with at the end in our own <laughs> questions that we ask the speakers later. Um, fantastic. Now we're going to turn to our second speaker who I'll just introduce now. Um, Dr. Ali Meji is a lecturer in social inequalities at the University of Cambridge. Currently, Ali's predominant research interests lie in bridging the epistemological, methodological and empirical divergencies between critical race theory and decolonial thought 
Through this research, Ali intends to balance the study of national racialized social systems with the global process of coloniality. Um, thank you so much for speaking to us this evening, Ali. Thanks, Rory. You've been on our staff profiles. <laughs> um, and thanks for welcoming me back to uh, Newington Green. I just moved out of the area in London and it does the best baklava around there. So um, I miss it greatly. Have a baklava on me. Um, so what I'm going to do today is to talk a bit about Du Bois really quickly. I want to talk about some of the kind of key moments where he pinpoints this logic of racialized modernity, um, where he's really kind of carrying on this ethic of what Gaminda was talking about in terms of showing how anti-colonial and anti-racist resistance has actually been essential to the making of the modern world and isn't an outside story or a non-existent story as Eurocentric slash Western accounts of history tend to um, render it to. So um, there's a beautiful PowerPoint with some pictures that I thought I would share. Um, and the thing I want to start with, first of all, is Du Bois's book, Black Reconstruction, which he published in 1935. Because what Du Bois is doing here is he's focusing on a particular moment in US history directly after the Civil War, which we typically refer to as the Reconstruction Era. But what he does is he challenges dominant accounts of what was happening in that time, and he retells the stories through this lens of racialized modernity to essentially highlight how Black agency and Black insurgency was absolutely essential for that rebuilding process of the US in that particular historical moment. But in virtue of that, the Black agency and insurgency was also essential to the making of the modern world much more globally and much more, you know, much further beyond the boundaries of the United States. Um, so the first way that Du Bois does that is that he basically highlights how enslavement was absolutely essential to the Southern economic system. But in virtue of being essential to the Southern economic system in the US, it was actually essential to the whole economic system in the US itself. And in virtue of being central to the whole US economic system, it was consequently essential to the whole global economic system. So as you can see in his own words, he talks about how raw materials like cotton, tobacco, sugar, and rice formed the real wealth of the United States and was produced by the Southern states. These crops were sold all over the world and were in such demand that the industry of Europe depended upon them. In Du Bois's own words, therefore, black labor became the foundation stone not only of the Southern social structure, but of Northern manufacture and commerce, of the English factory system, of European commerce, and of buying and selling on a worldwide scale. And I think that <clears throat> this is so important for understanding the relationship between race, racism, coloniality, enslavement, and the making of the modern world for at least two particular reasons in this text of Black Reconstruction. First of all, what Du Bois is pointing out is that there was actually an economic logic that underlied um, the very process of racialization, the very making of race itself. Because now in the 21st century, so many people um, just take race as a given thing. We kind of think of people as having different races almost as an innate category, like the color of their hair or the color of their eyes. But what Du Bois is really pointing out is that no race was socially constructed and it was socially constructed to achieve particular economic aims. The way he talks about that in Black Reconstruction is very much thinking about the plantation economy in the US South. 
and how the constructions of blackness and black inferiority were created by white elites in the South in order to maintain the economic control over them and to maintain the economic profits from their free exploited labor. Um, but also, I think at a more kind of theoretical level, what Du Bois is doing here, which is really similar to what Gaminda was talking about uh, in terms of Haitian revolution, is that he was pointing out that in virtue of having a whole global economy, which essentially relied on the exploitation of certain people and the labor of certain people, in this case, the enslaved in the US, it seems intuitively that we are actually denying these people agency. We're denying them agency because we're forcing them into free labor. But in virtue of having a whole system that relies on that labor, what we're actually doing is giving those people the most agency to overturn the whole system. In other words, if the whole system relies on the exploitation of these people's labor, if they withdraw their labor, the whole system collapses. And that's why they have so much power in their insurgency. And that's exactly what you see here when Du Bois is talking about the civil war in the States, because he's pointing out that all black people had to do in the US South was to stop work. And by stopping work, because they were so central to, as we, as we saw, cotton, tobacco, sugar, and rice, it almost threatened to starve the whole, the whole Confederacy. The whole Confederacy, the whole US South, relied on all of this labor to actually have food to eat. They relied on it for their subsistence. And I think that there's a really neat parallel here with the Haitian Revolution, where once again, um, France supposedly outlawed um, enslavement, not because they were being kind and benign, but because it was economically really bad for them to have all of these slave revolts where they were burning down the plantations, which, as Gaminda said, um, were incredibly profitable for the metropoles. So what Du Bois is really doing in this book, Black Reconstruction, among many other things, is really highlighting black agency and insurgency and really highlighting this contradiction where we have a whole system predicated on denying people agency, but in doing so actually manages to give them loads of agency itself. Um, and it's for this reason, among many others, that you see uh, Black Reconstruction being a book which um, the Black Panthers actually put on their reading list. And even Martin Luther King Jr., when he was doing an obituary for Du Bois, made a special reference to this book as one of the times where we have a history of the US told through a lens which actually appreciates the role that black people played in making the US what it is today. And um, in a side comment, Martin Luther King Jr. was a sociologist, so this is also a, um, a plug for sociology for those people who doubt the, veracity, doubt the um, analytical rigor of, of the discipline. And another reason why Black Reconstruction was really important is, is because it's where Du Bois puts forward this theory of abolition democracy. Abolition democracy being a concept which is now so popularized, especially in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd last year, where we saw theories of abolition really becoming not necessarily mainstream, but into particular mainstreamed avenues of, for example, social media discussions and media discussions a bit more broadly. What Du Bois is really doing in this concept of abolition democracy is he's pointing out, once again, something that Gaminda made reference to, this paradox of the US being a democracy which itself was founded upon enslavement. Um, but what Du Bois is also doing in this theory of abolition democracy is showing how this paradox of democracy and enslavement and the fact that democracy basically relied on enslavement, um, this paradox continues well into the post-Civil War era 
and it continues well into the supposed era of abolition. Um, so in the US South, for instance, they may have got rid of enslavement, but they, they started introducing these things called black codes. Black codes basically um, dictated the type of property that black people could own. Um, they often contained strict labor contract laws um, and also anti-enticement measures designed to punish anyone who offered higher wages to a black laborer already under contract. Black people who broke labor contracts or who could not provide proof of income and employment for the upcoming year could be subject to arrest, beating, and forced labor. And apprenticeship laws forced many minors, either orphans or those whose parents were deemed unable to support them by a judge, they were forced into unpaid labor for white planters. So what you really see in the post-Civil War era is not necessarily slavery just disappearing, but instead kind of transforming in the legal apparatus, transforming away from um, legalized enslavement towards a kind of a, almost like a loophole that was practiced through these black codes. And of course, that's, this is also when we get the loophole in the 13th Amendment, which continues today. The loophole saying that enslavement is um, illegal unless, and then you have a series of clauses, one of which is you can um, have free labor as a punishment for committing a particular crime. But if we know, as Angela Davis writes about in, in her book, Abolition Democracy, if we know that the legal system isn't actually constructed to be fair to all people, then we can see how the carceral system itself became a key way, once again, to maintain these relations of enslavement, even in the supposedly post-abolition era. So what we're really getting with Du Bois and his concept of abolition democracy and in his work of Black Reconstruction much more broadly, is that he isn't just interested in what was happening in the US in as much as the fact that he was interested in this global process of racialized modernity much more broadly. Du Bois really wanted to basically look at global history and to pinpoint those periods where the West, that he wanted to pinpoint those moments that the West declared as being moments of progress moments of progress towards liberty and freedom, like we get with, for example, the Council of the French Revolution. And instead, he wanted to show how these were actually processes not of progress towards liberty and freedom, but uh, moments that were embody, uh, embedded in this logic of coloniality, enslavement, and systemic racism. So for instance, that could involve his critique of that post-World War I era, where lots of people in the West, especially through the formation of the League of Nations, were saying, oh, look, this is a moment where Europeans are all coming together. Global history is all going to be really good now. It's going to be an extended period of peacetime. But what Du Bois points out in, for example, his editorial in the crisis to the World Manifesto of the Second Pan-African Congress is that the League of Nations was basically just a bunch of European institutions and European states coming together to um, further legitimize colonial rule. So the League of Nations, for instance, claimed that self-determination was now an international right, a right that should be recognized by the international community. And yet simultaneously, the way that the League of Nations defined self-determination allowed for peoples to be dominated and governed only by their own consent. And in fact, the League of Nations got this definition from the British Empire themselves, who they said um, had an empire that was based on the principles of national freedom and political decentralization. So Du Bois's response to this construction of the League of Nations, a moment which once again, we see as being a moment of progress towards liberty and freedom. He said, um, 
surely in the 20th century of the Prince of Peace, there can be found in a civilized world in the West enough of altruism, learning, and benevolence to, to develop native institutions for the native's good, rather than continue to allow the majority of mankind to be brutalized and enslaved by ignorant and selfish agents of commercial institutions, whose one aim is profit and power for the few. So once again, even in, in this moment, he's taking something which many in the West saw as being an um, inherently good institution, and instead he's turning it on its head and saying, no, through this lens of racialized modernity, we can see that things like the League of Nations is just colonialism uh, repackaged or colonialism continued and continued to be legitimated in slightly different ways to before. This is exactly the same thing that the voice then says in his piece, The Winds of Time, right after World War II, when you got the construction, not of the League of Nations, but now the construction of the United Nations. The United Nations, again, being an institution that supposedly committed itself to recognizing self-determination as an international right, and yet also an institution that was happy for colonialism to still continue. Um, and in particular, what Du Bois does is he takes issue with prominent political figures in this new political order, such as Winston Churchill, who we all know. Um, and the, this is how Du Bois describes Winston Churchill. Um, the speech of Winston Churchill was one of the most discouraging occurrences of modern times. The British Empire, of which he is one of the worst and most determined representatives, has been one of the chief causes of two world wars which have nearly overthrown civilization. So this comment is important for two reasons. One which we can talk about later if people wanted to ask about it is that Du Bois basically retold the histories of World War I and II where he said this was nothing to do with internal politics of Europe, it was to do with Europe fighting over their colonies. So actually, even though we tend to think of World War I and II as being these internal European affairs, it was a lar much larger story of coloniality. But secondly, what he's also doing is he's saying that post-war, post-World War II, we had this opportunity to restructure the global order. We had the opportunity to realize that, wasn't, that there was an inherent connection between European fascism and the fascism of the Nazi party with European colonialism. And that we could take the horrors of the take the horrors of Nazism and realize that those horrors are still being applied to colonial people and colonized people. And therefore we can work towards a better world because we realize that Nazism is, is barbarity, right? So that's the kind of argument that he's making here in response to Churchill. Um, and you can see that kind of glimmer of hope that Du Bois had that we could kind of restructure the global order when he said, at a time when it is possible by reorganizing the outlook of Great Britain towards democracy and race tolerance, this man, Churchill, proposes to the United States that we should help restore the empire, help to ensure its investments, help to perpetuate its hold upon colonial peoples. And the irony pointed out by Du Bois is that Churchill in this speech to the United States, in this plea for further financing of the British Empire, he's actually making a plea for free peoples in his speech and a recognition of freedoms for these free peoples. Um, yet, as Du Bois points out, these, the free people in the British Empire consist of 50 million Britishers, 9 million in Canada, 7 million in Australia, 1.5 million in New Zealand, and 2 million in South Africa. These 78 million people are ruling over 400 million colored people who have had no voice in their government and are used for the support and luxury of whites. If this is what it means to be free, God save freedom. So once again, Du Bois is really um, <clears throat> taking issue with how dominant conceptions of things like freedom in this particular historical era were so unbelievably racialized that people like Churchill could be talking about free people when he's talking about white settlers um, and white people 
in the metropoles themselves. And this leads me to the penultimate, to the penultimate slide, um, because what Du Bois is therefore trying to do is he's trying to show that even as we moved into the mid 20th century, and even in, as we moved into an era of supposedly colonial independence, where you get lots of nation, lots of nations formerly colonized now becoming nation states in their own right, what we're really seeing is a series of steps which receive different names, which denote not absolute but relative change. In other words, we have a new phase of colonial imperialism where big corporations and uh, big corporations and multinational corporations based in the West continue to do exactly the same thing that colonial powers were doing, even when colonialism supposedly ended. So as he says in his own words, it's an exaggeration to say that India is independent, for instance, because she must pay prices determined in London and New York and sell for prices set in San Francisco and Paris. She must produce and manufacture not what her people need, but what Europe and America want and will buy. World organization of capital will grip and retard India for many decades. Similarly about the US, he says the US has complete control over the Philippines, Cuba, Puerto Rico, Haiti, and the Dominican Republic, with New York dictating the price of Cuban sugar, Haitian coffee, and Dominican products while tin from Bolivia, coffee from Brazil, gold from South Africa, copper from Rhodesia, and uranium from Congo are all under foreign control, and the native populations have their income and way of life dictated by powers outside their political control. So um, this is a really good point that Du Bois is making about a new phase of colonial imperialism, because it brings us back to the very beginning in terms of what I was saying about Black Reconstruction. Because what Du Bois says about Black Reconstruction is that in the context of the US and the US South and the US Civil War, he says, at first, the white elites in the South knew Negroes were not intelligent enough for democracy. So they had constructed these notions of black inferiority and said that they would never be clever enough, they would never be civilized enough to be democratic, to, to, to sustain themselves in a democracy. Then it was afraid they might succeed. So they disenfranchised, at least they should succeed. So as soon as they realized, oh, our categories of race are actually completely fictitious and don't actually bear onto any reality, we have to create a whole infrastructure that makes race a real thing. Now, this is exactly what we also see in this new phase of colonial imperialism. Because first of all, um, we see the West combining around these notions of race to say these people are not civilized. That's the reason why we get to colonize them, because we're actually helping them to civilize, we're helping them to develop. And then as soon as anti-colonial insurgency um, becomes more and more and more and more, uh, puts more and more and more pressure on the West for their independence, they realize, oh, they might succeed, so let's rework the world order so that we still have colonialism, but we call it something else and it looks slightly different, even though it achieves exactly the same aims. Um, and I think I'll finish there because I'm quite sure I've probably gone beyond time now. Yeah, no, that's great, Ali. Thank you. Um, thanks so much for sharing that. And um, I can mind my brain is sort of running with so many different questions and ideas. Um, and I tried to write them down but I don't know if I have enough space um so yeah now it I think we'll open up to questions from anyone at all so you should hopefully be able to type questions in the chat unmute yourselves if you want to um I have some questions that I'm happy to start the discussion off with but if anyone has anything immediate they want to ask um I'll give space for that now just to check Cool. Um, well, feel free to unmute yourself or put anything, any questions in the chat. Um, and yeah, it'd be great to have, have some questions to be asked of these amazing. 
um, amazing speakers. Uh, the first question I would kind of like to start off with, I guess, is thinking about both the Haitian Revolution and Du Bois as it's basically in what ways can we think about uh, the legacies of Du Bois and the Haitian Revolution um, in sort of contemporary movements towards abolition, I guess. I'm thinking about uh, movements towards the abolition of prisons, the abolition of policing, but also abolition, I guess, as extending to a general practice of being in the world. Um, so I don't know if either of you wanted to share any thoughts on how we might take elements of these historical moments and thoughts um, in thinking through contemporary abolition movements. I'm happy to say um, something in, in relation to the Haitian Revolution. And I think it's partly that one of the things that perhaps we can take forward from the example of Haiti is really this aspect of how organized the revolution was and how extraordinarily, um, you know, because in a sense, as I was saying before in, in, in the discussion, like there were lots of moments of resistance to colonization, to enslavement and so on. And yet Haiti is one of the few successful revolutions against enslavement and colonization that we know of. And there are certain factors that, that sort of enabled it to occur. And in part, it's because the regime was so extraordinarily harsh in Saint-Domingue that people died quite, uh, the, the death rate of those who were forced to work on the plantations was incredibly high. And what that meant was that people had to work to reproduce the population by bringing in more people from Africa in order to work. And so the people who were on the island had not necessarily been born into slavery, but were often newly captured and so came having obviously been free previously and bringing their ideas, their understandings, their, their learning and their knowledge to the island and be part of this, this movement of, of revolution. There was also a sense that people, you know, sort of escaped from the plantations and the topography of, of Sandemang is that it's very hilly, it's very mountainous, mountainous, and there were places for people to sort of escape to. But in escaping to them, they also established what were called maroon communities in which they continued to sort of have a concern for what was going on in the rest of the island and working to support people who wished to leave and escape and establish these other communities and so on. And so when the time comes and it's incredibly that there's a lot of upheaval, people know about the revolution having happened in France and that sort of tumult is also happening in Saint-Domingue. There was and it required work. So Toussaint Louverture, he sort of shifts from place to place. He sometimes, um, he supports the British at one point where he thinks that the British will help him defeat the French, or then he goes and joins the Spanish. And, and you know, so he makes these alliances and he's strategic, but he knows that he's got a particular end that he wants. And that end is the end of enslavement and ultimately the end of enslavement and the end of colonization. And so I guess, there's something there around, you know, abolition becomes quite a contemporary way of thinking about these movements. And so what is it that we need to think about 
how it was that people themselves understood what they were doing and what enabled them to be successful at the time. And I think perhaps one lesson for us is just that it is possible to be committed to something and work for it. And you need to work with others, you need to be strategic in what's done, and you need to keep on at it. So the revolution didn't happen in an instant. It happened through decades of resistance, of building, of movements, and, and so on. And so I think there are those sorts of lessons that these things occur over time. They're not events, but actually, if colonization is a structure, then anti-colonial resistance is also structurally, or, or has to be thought of as structurally organized, not just, you know, hey, revolution. It's sort of, yeah. Fantastic, thank you. Um, do you have any thoughts, Ali? Yeah, really quickly, I'll just um, add a couple of things. You know, one of them is that I, th I think when Du Bois was talking about abolition democracy, something that was so important, which was picked up then by Angela Davis, is that he wasn't talking about removing institutions in as much as kind of creating new ones. So um, that, that would be a good lesson to bring with us. So if you're thinking about Du Bois in 1960, he writes a letter to Nkrumah upon Ghana becoming independent. And he says, you know, Ghana can't become part of the way the world system is right now. We have to create new federations. We have to create new kind of forms of economic governance. That mean that newly independent nations don't just get subsumed into this, um, into this structure of coloniality, which is what actually ended up happening. Um, so there's that. And then I think that the other thing we can take is um, thinking about kind of like transnational relations in the abolition movement. So, you know, when Du Bois was writing Black Reconstruction, he was writing about a really narrow time in American history, and yet he was relating it to kind of really global processes. And, you know, just the way of really thinking about that really easily now is how labor from US prisons is used to produce products which are bought and sold on, a, on you know, a global scale. So, uh, the issue of abolition and, and you know, the carceral system in the US is not just an issue for stuff going on in the US, it's an issue for a much more global thing, which once again, therefore, is speaking to something we can take from Du Bois, which was very much his transnational scope. Yes, completely. I agree. And I think what you mentioned before about abolition being the creation of new institutions rather than just taking them down reminds me of like Ruth Wilson Gilmore quote I always return to which is I think it's like abolition is not absence it's presence and it's about um, imagining what new worlds we could make outside of <laughs> these institutions rather than just simply removing them. Um, I would love to turn to this question in the chat from Sophie if uh, we if the speakers are able to stay on for that. Um, I'll just read it out loud. Thank you so much for your interesting talks. I was wondering if you had any thoughts about contemporary forms of anti-colonial dissent brackets like riots involving post-colonial citizens in Europe or the struggles in Palestine or other forms of revolts that you see as inheriting from the ones you spoke of today and the ways in which you see these legacies being traced. Um, would someone like to speak on that? I'm happy to uh, respond. I mean, one of the things about tracing legacies that's so interesting is that, you know, at the beginning of the talk, I was also talking about the sort of silence of the Haitian Revolution. And when I first started 
working on Haiti, one of the things that I felt was the way in which to think about it was to think about the silences and how people didn't know about the revolution. But then the more I started studying it, the more I realized, well, actually, it might be the case that we in universities and academia, etc., don't know about the revolution, but it was absolutely central to the uh, movements for independence in Latin America. So Bolivar comes to Haiti and he learns the lessons from what's happening in Haiti and he takes it back to the Americas and sort of, you know, the, the movements for independence, even though they're still settler colonial states in a way but nonetheless their sort of break from spain is inspired by what's happening in haiti the the rebel you know the the slave revolt of nat turner in the southern states of the us that's also referencing haiti as one of the the inspirations for the revolution it's part of the harlem renaissance and in the way that robbie shilliam has talked about it's also central to the movements of maori people against the european colonization in Eritrea, New Zealand. And so in that sense, you know, that people who are in struggle against colonial colonialism, colonially struct, colonial structures and so on, they are motivated to find out about what has happened elsewhere, what has worked elsewhere and what can be done in other sorts of places, drawing the lessons from these places. And so I think in that sense, if you look at the histories of struggle, you'll see that these connections are absolutely there. And if we now begin to talk about the Haitian revolution within the university, it's only come into the university as a consequence of it having been, the memory of it having been kept alive by those struggles. Yeah, that's completely, thank you so much. Um, Ali, do you want to add anything? Yeah, sure. Um... So, you know, I think that the Palestine is such a good example. Oh, hi, Sophie, by the way, how's it going? Um, so Palestine is such a good example, Sophie, because um, I found it so interesting when the when people thought Black Lives Matter started last year and I thought, oh, Black Lives Matter is this new thing and it started in 2020. And then suddenly people realized, oh, some members of Black Lives Matter also support Palestinian liberation. Maybe we shouldn't support Black Lives Matter as an organization anymore. And it was really interesting the way that people tried to kind of um, therefore decouple different struggles from across the world um, in a way that was completely opposite to what Gaminda was just describing, where, you know, Haitian revolutionaries inspired revolutions across Cuba, you know, Dominica, Barbados, Brazil, Bolivia, and so on and so on. Um, so I found that really interesting. And once again, it kind of brings us back to Du Bois. And Du Bois is interesting here because he actually supported the occupation of Israel. But I think um, at a theoretical level, what we can take from him is that, yeah, there is a connection between, for instance, the carceral system in the US with coloniality and its expressions elsewhere, as you see in a case like, um, as you see in a case like Israel. So I think that you can take that kind of, once again, transnational um, perspective from him. But yeah, to bring it back to Gaminder, it's about interconnected struggles, right? Um, and I think that that's the reason why Black Lives Matter is such a great is such a great kind of demonstration of this in real time. Um, firstly, because of the way that they support Palestinian freedom, but also the way that other people across the world also came in support with um, Black Lives Matter protesters last summer. So, you know, Maori people were protesting against their incarceration and connecting it to 
um, the hyper-incarceration of black Americans. People in Kenya were protesting police violence and the way that that was instigated by colonial laws. And, you know, we were taking statues down in the UK and across Europe um, in the summer in those protests, once again, because they were thoroughly interconnected with what they were protesting in the US. So I guess that's the kind of things that I would um, take from Du Bois, despite his uh, problematic views around Israel. That, that's the kind of stuff that I would take from Du Bois if I were thinking around uh, contemporary anti-colonial dissents. Thank you. Yeah, thank you both for articulating the significant need for a sort of transnational solidarity constantly in any any liberation movement, which I think is something that the you know the the Black Panthers, for example, did so well throughout <laughs> their their existence. And um, in fact, all of these things should hopefully will be well will be rediscussed later on in this series. We have someone in a few weeks' time um, who. Uh, has written about the Panthers and um, similarly in the next session in two weeks time um, we have Akanksha Mehta and Ruba Sully who is herself a Palestinian researcher and activist who uh, will be talking about how we define and mediate violence um, and yeah I think I think in for me in thinking about Palestinian liberation struggles currently you know Thinking back to the thought, the abolitionist thought of Du Bois and of the Haitian Revolution, I, you know, it's 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 always more than anything a useful reminder that in times when such things were considered impossible or never conceivable, we, you know, humanity still managed to find ways to resist and abolish. And um, yeah, sorry, that's I just think it's very beautiful. Um, does anyone else have any questions they'd like to ask our speakers? Um, feel free to put anything in the chat or um, say something out loud. Um, I have some of the things I might ask in our last two minutes, um, if that's okay. Um, one thing I'd really like to, one thing I thought was articulated in both of your talks was, I guess, the the invention of race and the notion of race becoming a more essential or essentialized category and that I, I think thinking about race in the current moment where it almost feels like race is becoming even more entrenched and essentialized especially in the way COVID-19 has been discussed in this country you know thinking about um, the notion that people from uh, people of colour are more affected by COVID-19 being not critically analysed at all as being a result of many social and economic factors rather than any sort of inherent biological impulse. Um, so I wondered if uh, either or both of you might be able to speak on, um, I guess, how we might move beyond an essentialised understanding of race with uh, the sort of legacies that you've been speaking about that and in a way that also um, respects and pays attention to the specific needs of racialized people in that process. Do you want to go first, Kalinda? No, why don't you, Ali? It's your research area more strongly. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, so, Sophie and I actually wrote a paper about this published in sociology. So, um, 
I think it's, it's open access at the moment, so people can look at that. But this is the ultimate form of abolition, right? It's the abolition of the concept of race itself. And I think that Paul Gilroy put it really well when he took it from Bob Marley, who put it really well, that the aim of anti-racism really is to make the color of your skin mean nothing more than the color of your eyes. Um, so it, it's kind of like we're in this really contradictory location where we've been racialized. So the only way to do anti-racism is to take seriously that racialization. But the end goal of what we want to do is to get rid of the thing which we're kind of using to build solidarity around in terms of the concept of race itself. Um, and I think that, yeah, it's just right. There's no biological race gene, even though doctors will tell you there is, politicians will tell you there is, and so on and so on. Um, and even those who kind of admit, yeah, race isn't a biological thing, uh, but it's socially constructed, they can still talk about it in very essentialized ways or in ways which are really, you know, remnant of scientific racism. So um, sport is a really good example where, for instance, black players are just consistently referred to in terms of their physical characteristics as opposed to, you know, white sports people who are talked about in terms of their mental capacities or whatever. Um, and, you know, that has consequences outside of the world of sport and sport commentary because the reason why so many black people get killed in the States by the police, for instance, is because the police are convinced that black people are completely aggressive and are in need of disciplining, right? So um, our ideas about race matter and they shape our actions in the world. And that's the reason why we're kind of, you know, calling for an abolition of the concept of race. But you can't just get rid of it overnight, like what Gaminda said, you know? And I think, Gaminda, you said it uh, a couple of years ago, if it took centuries to build, it's not, you know, it could potentially take centuries to get rid of as well, right? <laughs> yeah, thank you, Ali. I don't know if you have anything to add, Gaminda, or... No, I think that that's great, you know, because in a sense, so sort of agree that race is something that I think is intimately tied up with colonial histories. And I think is something that comes about as a form of legitimation of colonial inequality. And so in that sense, if we haven't addressed those colonial legacies in the present and race is so bound up with that, then it's not going to be an easy task to think beyond it. Well, we've seen the difficulties with the various reports that have come out recently where people can't seem to figure out that there's a way of, you know that if we think about COVID-19 for example that COVID-19 affects some communities more than other communities but that's not because of any race or any gene or any biological difference but because those communities are a doing particular occupations in a greater propensity than other communities and that the effect of a racialized society is around how society itself is structured so that some people do some types of jobs and other people do other types of jobs that then makes people more likely to get or not get covid and so it appears to correlate to race but it's actually correlating to occupation to deprivation to poverty and 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 to accessibility to the vaccine so one of the things i just wanted to say you know i mean there's been this entire conversation about vaccine hesitancy amongst some communities and nobody has provided any evidence for hesitancy what there has been evidence for has been accessibility to the vaccine and as soon as a vaccine is made accessible in deprived communities you have queues of people waiting to be vaccinated so i think 
that there's a way in which, you know, as, as Ali was sort of setting out, that we need to distinguish between race, racialized inequality, and how we address the issues associated with, with both. And it just requires a little bit of nuance when doing that. Completely. Thank you so much for that. And I think it's uh, taking forward this idea of a sort of transnational solidarity as well is going to become even more essential when thinking about uh, access, access to vaccination throughout the world, especially in former colonial states. And um, this is something I personally believe we all need to be very vocal about um, because this pandemic won't be over if it's not over everywhere. Um, I've also just put a link in the chat to the paper that Ali was talking about that Ali and Sophie wrote together. So, and it is open access. So I would very much recommend everyone go and read it if they can. Um, I could keep asking questions for much longer, but I also am aware that this needs to end. So unless anyone has any final thoughts or comments or questions, um, I would be more than happy to wrap up here and let everyone and the speakers go have a lovely evening. And um, yeah, thank you so much to everyone for your thoughts and for listening and for being here. Um, and I hope everyone, please, please come back to the, the other sessions in the season. Um, the next one is in two weeks time, as I said before, and the topic is defining violence. How is violence mediated and how is violence defined? And our two speakers are Akanksha Mehta, who's at Goldsmith University, and Ruba Salih, who is at SOAS University. And um, yeah, I would like to thank everyone again and uh, have a lovely evening. Thanks a lot for the invite. See you. Bye. Thanks, Seal. Thank you.